Today's scripture comes from Psalm 82, 2-5, Malachi 3-5, and Psalms 27-10. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Malachi 3.5 Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And from Psalm 27.10 For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you who are new to our church, or if this is the first time you're joining us, we're in the middle of a series. It's a difficult series. Um, it's called Biblical Justice. And we are handling subject matters which are really uh, controversial and roiling our society and causing great division and, and quite frankly, lots of anger and hatred. Um, and so we've taken this series of time to think about what does the Bible talk about justice and what is God's call for justice. And so, um, you know, I won't go through a whole review. The main thing I, I really want to get at is that first and foremost, uh, justice is of God. It's part of, it's an eternal attribute of his character. And so justice really never changes. And, and, and the same, it does not matter which culture you're a part of or which time, God's justice is the same. And the practical outworking we were getting into is that across the Bible, repeatedly, again and again and again, God's justice has a concern for very specific types of persons. And the persons that we're talking about are the fatherless, the widow, and what you know, our translation calls the sojourner. And the sojourner, I think, you know, we might translate it as the, um, as the outsider or as the, as the foreigner or as the minority. I think that's, that's probably a pretty good translation. Um, the fatherless, the widow, and the minority. And at this portion of this series, we are, we are focused on the fatherless. And so I've got at least one more sermon on the fatherless. And we will tackle that next week. And, um, and then we're going to take a break. And then we'll, let's focus on Christmas, okay, after that. We are in the Advent season. And then after Advent is over in the early in, in, early in uh, January... We'll pick, back, pick up um, and continue through um, this series, and then we'll start looking at um, the widows and, and, uh, and the minorities, okay, and, and how, what God says about them. So today's message I've entitled, The Vulnerabilities of the Fatherless. The Vulnerabilities of the Fatherless. Let's get into it. Part one, the defender of the oppressed and exploited. The defender of the oppressed and exploited. The Bible is explicitly clear. I mean, it is very clear, and it is very clear repeatedly. And as I've already shared with you some of the messages in the past, those who exploit and oppress will, you know, they will incur the wrath and anger of God. That's part of justice, right? But um, let's, let, let me, re, um, we'll get at that point today, um, specifically with respect to the fatherless. Part two, um, I want to start to apply this and help you to see it in our time. And part two is the external and inner vulnerabilities of the fatherless. 
The external, um, which I think are a little bit easier to see, but uh, I think which is often blind to many people, they have an inward vulnerability for being fatherless, which our society regularly um, overlooks. And I want to close by talking about the love of the father to the fatherless and what that looks like. Um, you know, our, our culture tends to, when we talk about justice, immediately, you know, like incur guilt and anger and wrath and, and try to motivate us primarily by guilt. But we are a gospel-centered church. We're not here to motivate you by guilt. We're here to motivate you by grace. And so I will close by talking about the love of the Father for the fatherless. Um, part one, let's talk about, um, just, just, I just want to, just for the sake of time, I mean, if, if I had my way, we, this would be more than an hour, okay? And you would, we would look at like maybe 10 verses. And so you can see and feel the weight of this theme in the Bible. But I've already kind of done some of that. But just for the sake of time, I just want to go through three passages which our sister read. And so let's just go through this first one. Psalm 82, verse 2 through 5. Psalm 82. So here it goes, verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And remember, this is said to the people of God. This is a word. I mean, I think the Bible already assumes that the people who don't know God, they will judge unjustly. But this is, this, is a, this is a particularly tough word because it's said to people's God's people. But just as how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, that's completely normal. In a sinful fallen world, that's pretty much how the world works. Partiality for the wicked and there's unjust judgment. Verse 3, therefore this is what God says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Now, I want to stop for a moment here. I want to teach you a little something about how to read the Bible. Um, this is classic. This is a classic construction of Old Testament Hebrew poetry. There's two statements. And those two statements are basically the same statement. I want you to understand that. There's two statements, but really there's only one statement. It's just two statements said twice. And the first one illumines the second one, and the second one illumines the first one. Do you get what I'm saying? So if something is said twice, but it's really just the same thing, you just hear it a little different way, and you get to understand it more deeply. So let me say, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. That's the first statement. Here's the second statement. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Now let me say this a little bit differently. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Who is the fatherless? When the Bible puts words like this together, what you're supposed to see is that one really tells you what the other one is. Give justice to the weak. You know who the weak are? The fatherless. You know what the fatherless are like? Weak. That's what the Bible's saying here. The commentary is, you want to understand the fatherless? They're weak. You understand who the weakest people in our society are? They're the fatherless. Let's go to the next verse. Then the next statement, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Who is the afflicted and the destitute in our society? According to the Bible, it is the fatherless. You hear what I'm saying? The first statement already told you who the second statement is. The second statement is, give, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. 
If you go into almost any society and you want to figure out who the most destitute, who the most afflicted people in the society are, you know what you should be thinking about? Most of us tend to immediately think about external poverty or we tend to look at like skin color or something like this. But actually, if you walk through the neighborhood, you'll find out what's your daddy like? What's your daddy like? What's your daddy like? You know what you're going to find? And social science has already proved this. The vast percentage of them don't have a daddy or they have a very bad father. <laughs> That's what afflicted and destitute looks like. Um, I just want to emphasize verse 5. So it says, well, it says, Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So that's interesting. Who's the they? I think the, the immediate context is the fatherless, the weak, the needy. They don't have knowledge or understanding. You know, one of the best ways to help the fatherless, the weak, the destitute, the afflicted? Help them have understanding. And you know where light streams in from? From the Bible. <laughs> not from secular social justice. Not from our universities. But from God. But, you know, this is interesting too. I think this is this, um, it's actually not, immediately clear that the they have neither knowledge nor understanding. I don't think it's immediately clear it's, we're talking about the fathers. I think if in the context that's what, it, that's what makes sense. But it also, the passage starts off, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's what it says in the context. You know what it's saying? Whoever the people are in our society, they don't get it. Oh boy, we don't get it. And I'm not just talking about secular people who don't believe in God or the Bible or Jesus. We Christians, we regularly don't get it. We don't get it. And so I'm asking us here, we were going through this series that please, uh, we're, we're, we're very deliberately trying to help you push back, you know, I don't know if you have right wing or left wing political sensibilities. I don't know what you were taught in your universities. Even different generations have different biases when it comes to how they think about poverty and justice. You know, I can tell just, you know, I'm X generation, talking to the millennials, they think differently, and then talking to, you know, I, even then. But can we push all that aside? What does the Bible say? What does God have to say? And it's about the weak and the fatherless, the fatherless of the weak, the destitute and the afflicted. The weak and the fatherless, the afflicted and the destitute, it's all the same as the fatherless, Okay. Um, let's just go to Malachi 3. Um, it's very easy verse to understand, but I just want to just show you. This is like one verse that's similar to so many verses. Okay? And just, I just, just chose this to you. And I just chose this one because um, it's because it's easy to understand. And just because you can, you know, if you've been with, with us through this series, you've already heard this multiple times, but I want to repeat it in this way, right? This is Malachi 3.5, and this is God's word to Israel. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. That's scary, okay? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who, and pay attention to the next part, oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Let's just stop for a moment here. Um, whenever the Bible says words like this, I will be against those who oppress, 
the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. You know what the Bible is saying? This is going on. This is going on. Every time you read a word like this, the Bible is saying this is going on. And as soon as it says this is going on, this is, this is big trouble. And so, I, I'm just wanna, I just want to bring this up. You, we live in a society that's very socioeconomically and racially segregated, and it's, it's completely normal. And particularly, you know, different tribes, you know, literally in, in our county, if you are a little bit more successful, you tend to live on one side of the county in certain neighborhoods, et cetera, quote, unquote, where the better schools are. I don't even think they're the better schools, but okay, that's, that's another <laughs> comment for another day. But that's, 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 uh, that's really how they think. And then we live, and we want to live like this. There, there are literally neighborhoods that we call gated communities because they literally have a gate. You can't walk into that neighborhood. And so things like poverty and if you get the wrong skin color or whatever, those people are kept out. And so we like to live in a bubble of comfort, but... Um, I tend to think that certain cities, the whole city might as well be gated. There may not literally be a gate in, in, a certain, in certain suburbs, but there, there might as well be. And so, you know, if, if I want to challenge you to think about, you know, our world and our city, ours, our, ours is a church, we care about our city. And if we're going to care about our city, we have to care about justice, God's way of thinking about justice. And... For God, it's quite, this is going on. There are people who are oppressing the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. And we're not talking about over there in some other country. We're talking right around here. And we should think about the injustice in our backyard. Um, okay? So um, I'll just say one more verse, and, and I'm going to get to this more late, later in the message. This is just a beautiful, beautiful verse. And I just want you to just see this is how, how, how God thinks. If justice is from God, and I already told you, justice is an attribute, really, it's just really a subset of God's love. And this is how he puts it. For my, Psalm 27, 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord Yahweh will take me in. I want you to think about that. You meet people who are fatherless. They can say, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but will you and I believe that the Lord will take them in. That's the call. Okay, that's the call. Let's go to part two. Um, I want to give you, um, help you see it a little bit more in our, in our, um, in our times. And um, I've, you know, I've done a lot of reading on this over the years. Uh, I, I've read whole books and sociological studies. And um, so, but I, I thought I would like to just try to give this to you um, succinctly, and I, I, it's, I, I just love it when the Lord does this, you know. I think it was Frank our, <laughs> in our church. He sent me a link to an essay. I read this essay, and I was like, okay, I'm going to use this in a sermon. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, one, of the, the, one of the great social critics of our time is Mary Aberstadt. And Mary, Mary Aberstadt has studied this issue of fatherlessness um, probably better than most, and maybe not everybody, but she's up there. I think Mary Aberstadt is Catholic, and she wrote an essay called The Fury of the Fatherless for one of my favorite journals called First Things. And um, I just want to sh uh, share with you some of what she said, right? So we'll, 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 
I'm just going to give you this, and then we'll put the quote up I want to share with you. She, she said, six decades of social science have established that the most efficient way to, to increase dysfunction is to increase fatherlessness. So you want more dysfunction in our society? The, the best way to do it, six decades of science, six decades, 60 years, is fatherlessness. That's it. And she said, and this the United States has done. So here's how she summarized it. For two generations now, almost one in four children today grow up, grows up without a father in the home. One out of four. It's all across the country. For African Americans, it is some 65% of children. I've heard 70%. I've heard 68%. I mean, we're all, it's up there. That is an absolutely um, catastrophic number. That's, uh, if you meet a, a black person today, a black American, do you know that you can pretty much bet money that they didn't have a dad? Seven out of ten. That's crazy. It's a crazy number. And if all the dysfunctionalities in our society are unleashed by fatherlessness, that's a terrible, terrible, horrible plight that's going on in our society. And regardless of skin color, anybody who's going through this, we should care. But I do think we should especially care about our neighbors who are black. But we shouldn't care about them primarily for their skin color. I think from God's point of view, we should care about fatherlessness. Okay? Now, now let, me, let me show you a, quote, a couple of quotes here. Um, it's just, just Mary Eberstadt here. I think we'll have this. Uh, the vast majority of incarcerated juveniles have grown up in fatherless homes. So if you go to juvie, juvie, juvenile hall, you know what you're going to see? Fatherlessness. So instead of just seeing criminal kids, maybe you should see fatherless kids. Teen and other mass murderers are almost invariably have filial rupture in their biographies. <laughs> filial rupture. That's a fancy way of saying no dads, okay? okay? Absent fathers predict higher rates of, and catch this, truancy, psychiatric problems, criminality, promiscuity, drug use, rape, Domestic violence and other less than optimal outcomes. I love that phrase, less than optimal outcomes. Rape. She's being very nice about it. Look at that list. It's an unbelievable list. She says it predicts it. I think that's absolutely right. It predicts it. And by the way, this cut completely cuts across all races. And so, um, you know... My children and, you know, well, not all my children because one of my ones. We watched a movie last night for, of, a, of a terrific book that came out called Hillbilly Elegy. And there's a movie on Netflix of it. Um, I recommend it. If you, you should read the book. It's way better than the movie. But if you're not going to read the book, which you probably won't, watch the movie. And um, you might think, is this for real when you watch the movie? Because there's so many painful and terrible things that happen in the movie. And if you read the book... The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. Um, let me give you a little bit more of Mary Eberstadt. So these are what I'm going to call the external vulnerabilities. So 
Just understand this. I mean, I, you know, I won't try to get into the, all the whys, okay? But as soon as you take a dad out of the home, I already kind of gave you a hint of this a couple weeks ago. You lose your dad, you also basically lose your mom. That's the way it was with Sung Chan Ra. He lost his dad, then his mom had to work two jobs, and then he said, boom, in one swoop, I lost both my parents. And then what if the community around you also has a lot of fatherlessness? And then what you have is just a lot more truancy, psychiatric problems, criminality, etc., etc. That's how the fatherless are vulnerable. That's one way. But I think here, this is, this is even more important. And I want to emphasize this. They're vulnerable on the inside. <laughs> they're not just vulnerable on the outside from society. They're vulnerable on something inside their soul. And this is something that we're really we're invisible to. And, this, and some of you, if you, you know, your father abandoned you or if you had a particularly abusive or a poor father, you have some idea. You, you feel this too. And so she talks about the, the vulnerability on the inside. And here's how she puts it, all right? Those who don't have a father, those who don't have a father are also especially emotionally and inwardly vulnerable. So here's another pertinent, albeit socially radioactive fact. Here's how she puts it. A pertinent but radioactive fact. Fatherlessness leads to a search for father substitutes. So the, the fatherless kid's not going around saying, I'm looking for a father substitute. But he is, or she is. And some of these daddy placeholders turn out to be toxic. So here's where she goes, and she, she, she offers it, she makes this connection. The murder rates in inner cities, for example, are irreducibly familial phenomena. That's because the murder problem is largely a gang problem, and the gang problem is largely a daddy problem. Hear what she's saying? You want to know what, where the murder rate is bad in a given city? It's where the gang problem is bad. You want to know what's at the root of the gang problem? No daddy. Will you hear that? Will you hear that in our, in our culture today? You will not hear that in our culture today. But if you go look at all the social science, it's right there. It's, it's not, there's nothing subtle about it. Study after study after study after study after study. You see daddiness, no daddy? You get this. This is just one example. Um, I'll just offer some other ones. Um, around the world, you heard this thing called the sex slave trade? It's a no daddy problem. <laughs> because if a daddy's around and somebody wants to kidnap your child to enslave them for the sex trade, it's a lot harder to do that because a daddy will bring out his gun or his knife and say, you better get away from my kid or I'll kill you. It's a lot harder to take kids and make them part of the sex slave trade. But, you know, this has been going on for ages. You know, we call it the sex slave trade today. It's just history. One set of people will invade another set of people, murder all the men, and then take off the women and the children to be slaves, a lot of them are sex slaves. It's just history. Um, they say, I, I've read about this. 
you want to go around all the prostitutes and the strippers? Where do prostitutes and strippers come from? They come from the context of no daddies. That's where they come from. Um, let me mention one more. Where else do we get the oppression of the fatherless? You never hear about this in the news. You will never hear about this in the news. But I'm, I'm positive God is extremely upset about this. The other place where you get the oppression of the fatherless is abortion. <laughs> 800,000 in recent count. No dad. And I'm not saying it's, you know, some of the women are trapped. I get it. It's a horrible, horrible situation. But what if the man was saying, I'll take care of that child? We'd have a lot less abortions, don't you think? Don't you think? It's a daddy problem. So, um, let me just close with one more um, quote. So this is from Mary Eberstadt, but she, she's, she's not, this isn't from Mary Eberstadt. She puts it in an article, but I want to just give this to you and then we'll go to the close of the message. This is from the Minnesota Psychological Association. A high percentage of gang members come from father-absent homes. I'm telling you, it's not just father, it's prostitutes, etc., etc. okay? But we're talking about gang members. Possibly resulting from a need for a sense of belonging. That's absolutely what it is. I've watched documentaries where gang kids, where adults will say to this, this kid who's part of a gang and say, if you join this gang, don't you know the average age of life is like 20 years old? This kid is like 16. So in four years, you'll probably be dead. They say that to this kid, straight to his face. And he goes, you know what he says? So, here I belong. My brother will come for me. So they'd rather live 20 years or end up in prison or dead than have no belonging, see? So it's not possibly, it absolutely is. Gaining that sense of belonging is an important element for all individuals. Through gangs, youth find a sense of community and acceptance. In addition, the gang leader may fill the role of father, often leading members to model their behaviors after that individual. Having a father in the child's life greatly reduces the likelihood of a child joining a gang. No duh. <laughs> yes. So that's a little picture of where we're at. And um, it's obviously really quite terrible. Isn't it? I'm not trying to just. Um, I've studied this for years, and I've wrestled with this knowledge for years. And um, I know it's a really strange and hard thing to know that this is what's really at the core, one of the most fundamental core problems of our society. And then you go into universities and you watch the news and nobody gives a rip. It's an incredibly painful thing to know that. And I don't mean to get super like angry or something, but I can't help it. Sometimes I just get really angry 
And when I read those passages of the Bible where God's saying, I'm going to burn you down, I understand it. If you allow your heart to sit in this for a while, it's hard not to get upset. Like, really upset. And if you ever go meet some people, and so they don't become like a statistic, some group, poor kids, black kids, whatever, some abstract name inside of a study or inside of a newspaper article, but you meet somebody and you know their name and you know their face and you know their story. And then you know how everything in our society is built to throw this kid away. <laughs> wow, it's, it's, it's a tough thing. It's a really tough pill. Brothers and sisters, we have to, can't just be angry. We have to take on the deep, deep justice and mercy. Real justice, the love of God. Okay? So I want to close. Um, I want to close with a story. I'm trying to make this a little more personal. And then I want to close with you something really good from the Bible. Something so good. And so um, I want to tell you something out of this book. Um, any of you heard this book? The Blind Side by Michael Lewis. And it's a famous book, best-selling book. And uh, they even made a movie out of it. So same thing again. If you haven't watched, you can read the book. You can watch the movie, okay? <laughs> Decently good movie. Not as good as the book, okay? I'll tell you the basic storyline of the book, but this, uh, that's not the part I want to highlight. Um, it's, it's, about, uh, it's about a rich family on one side of Memphis. They're Christians. Sean and Leanne Tui, and they send their kids to, you know, expensive Christian private school. And what ends up happening through a series of unbelievable story is a young man, so a, a, a black man whose son, he wants to give his son a better chance, takes his son to the rich side of town. So one side of town, you know, like apparently half of Memphis is black and poor, and half of Memphis is white and rich. That's the way it's, the book is painted. I've never been there, so I don't know. I think I drove through there, so I wouldn't know. But So when he does that, at the time, his friends, his son's friend was a big kid named Mike. And Mike's mom was a drug addict, didn't know his dad, and Mike was sleeping on their living room. And so he decides to just take Mike along, and then the school, this Christian school, gave both of the kids a free ride. And what ends up happening is Sean, too, he notices this huge, he's a huge kid, and he's super athletic. Michael Orr, that's his name. And it, what the story starts to un, unfurl is that essentially has every, all the makings to be an offensive lineman in the NFL. I don't know if you know this, but after the quarterback, the highest paid players in the NFL are the offensive linemen because they're extremely rare. It takes an extremely rare skill set. You have to be like 300 pounds, yet athletic and smart. <laughs> Michael had all the attributes in high school. So as the story goes, this family, um, Sean and Leanne Tui, they take, they start, you know, he starts reaching out to Michael and then over time, Leanne she basically takes him into their house and they adopt him. True story. And so Michael Orr gets adopted by Sean and Leanne Tui. And um, 
and I don't know if you know this, but he was drafted in the first round by the NFL. <laughs> I mean, he, he, it happened. Okay? So that's what happened. So they, they did justice according to the Bible. So here's the, here's the verse. The verse I read you. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. That became true of Michael Orr through Sean and Leanne Tooley. Incredible. It's an incredible story. It's so good that secular people want to watch this movie. Okay? But I want to close with a little bit toward the end here. So, one morning, this is after, you know, Michael's, you know, he seems to be well on his way towards success. Sean Tooley wakes up, and Leanne is very, very upset. His wife is upset. Because she had read something. So she's reading the paper and it reported the story of a young man named Arthur Salas. Salas had been the star fullback on Memphis East High's team, which had been state champions in 1999 and runners up in 2000. State champions. I mean, like teams around here don't even get even close to state championship, but basically, East Memphis, that's what happened. But he was the running back. So when he was the running back, he averaged, and he averaged, this is average per carry, 10 yards a carry. I don't know if you understand, for those of you who don't know football, 10 yards a carry is absolutely insane, <laughs> okay? This guy is like a superstar among superstars. Basically, you give him the ball, and he just scores. It's crazy. That's what he's like. And there's a coach that was trying to recruit him from Kentucky, Hal Mumi said that Salas was one of the finest football players he had ever seen. But the story goes on. Salas, Arthur Salas, had been offered scholarships by the University of Kentucky and Mississippi, but he didn't take them. Why? Because his grades were poor and he was disqualified by the NCAA rules. And then as it goes on to say, Arthur Salas was only typical as it happened, he'd been part of a study of inner city athletes in Memphis. And the study revealed that for every six public school kids with the ability to play college sports, listen to this, every six kids who have the ability to play college sports, five failed to qualify academically. Five failed to qualify. You can just imagine how much better our sports teams would be goes on to talk about Arthur. He never knew his father, and his mother was an alcoholic in and out of jail. From the time he was a little boy, Arthur lived by himself out on the streets. In high school, he'd gotten into all kinds of trouble, but most of it was driven by his need to get money to live. I used to joke that, this is one of the coaches said, that Arthur was the only football player I ever had who I had to keep a lawyer on retainer for. But listen to this. What made him interesting was that with his coach's help, Arthur had gone straight. He'd eked out a living with his own carpet cleaning business. He'd fathered a baby girl and was raising her by himself. He was doing all the things a responsible person should be doing, said his former high school coach. 
Then a few months after Arthur Salas had left high school, he caught two men stealing a car and tried to stop them. For his trouble, he got himself shot. Point blank. Once in the back and once in the chest. This is the crazy part. He survived. He nearly died. When his old high school coach visited him in the hospital, Salas told him, if God gets me out of this coach, I'm never going to be out on the street again. He had been true to his word. The newspaper Leanne dropped in Sean's lap told the story of what happened next. Arthur Salas wasn't on the streets, but at home with his four-year-old daughter when the three men broke in. Salas grabbed one, and another shot him three times in the head. Arthur Salas could have been a teammate of Michael Orr's at, at Mississippi. Instead, at the age of 22, he was dead. Sean was only waking up. This is Sean Tilly, the white Christian father of Michael Orr. And yet his wife was pacing back and forth in front of him, angry and upset. She was crying, but she was also pissed off. Do you realize that you could take this kid's name out and put Michael's name in and have the same story? Why didn't this kid fall on our doorstep? That's what Leanne Tui was thinking that morning. Brothers and sisters, um, you know, um, Sean and Leanne Tui are rich. Um, they are very privileged in their own city. And you think, well, you know, they could do it because they're rich. I don't know. I, I, I've met lots of people over the years, and they're rich, and they don't do this. <laughs> lots, lots of rich Christians, and they don't do this. And I'm not saying you have to do what Sean and Leanne Tui did. What they did was extraordinary. But I want to ask you this question. Maybe we should think a little bit more like Leanne Tui. That there's Arthur Salas's in this neighborhood. And maybe we should think a little bit more about them. Maybe we can't adopt them or be their dad. But Maybe we can help them have something more, take them to the real dad. And so I want to close this message this way by offering you something really beautiful from the Bible. And I just want you to read, listen, all right? I thought about projecting it, but I just want you to listen. There's a story in the Bible. It's from Luke chapter 15. It's what Jesus tells. It's one of the most beautiful and amazing stories in the Bible. It's a famous story. It's called the parable of the prodigal son, which prodigal means the wasteful son. And I'm just going to pick up. So, I'll, well, actually, let me give you a, I'm going to try to pick up toward the end. So I'll, let me just, a man has two sons. The younger son basically tells his dad, I'd re, I'd rather, I wish you were dead. I'd rather just have the money. You're going to give me money when you die. So just give it to me now while I'm, you're still alive. And then he basically leaves the house. And then he basically has wild living with prostitutes. 
And then his life gets totally desperate. And then he comes back home to ask his dad, I'll just be a hired servant in your house. So let me pick it up here. So this is Luke 15. So this is what happens. So his dad welcomes him home. He puts a ring on his hand and robes on him, and he throws the most absolute lavish party in a town where everybody who knows anything about this younger son hates his guts, and they feel obligated to beat him up. That's, like, that's, so these people are going to shut this party. They're going to be totally confused. Who's home? Why are we throwing a party for him? Our whole town is supposed to kill him. And this is the reaction what happens. Now his older son, the older son was the quote-unquote good son who stayed home and didn't mess up his family's name. The older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Because dad wants to dance. But this no good son came home. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you, gave me a, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. I just want to close this way. The reason why we don't pay attention to the Arthur's houses of our neighborhood because most of us, we had a good dad, or a lot of us had a good dad, and then we go out into life, and mostly what we care about is, would somebody throw a party for me? Where's my money? Where's my party? Where's my comforts? But have you ever thought that if you didn't have a dad, wouldn't it be great that there was a brother out there, there's a father like this who desperately would want the Arthur Salas to come home and there'd be a brother who would go look after him and welcome him home. And most of us, we're not like Leanne Tui. We're like this brother. This is what most of us are like. We don't pay attention to the Arthur Salases or Michael Orr's in our life. And I don't think we're going to solve fatherlessness. Okay? It's just going to be here till Jesus returns. And the injustices and the wickednesses of it, of the people who are vulnerable, will be perpetrated on them. And they will perpetrate upon themselves because they have the vulnerability inside themselves. But we must live in the gospel and here's what the gospel teaches. This is why I want to close. We're mostly like the older brother, and we're not like Leanne Tui. But there is one who has the Father's heart. His name is Jesus. This older brother, he knew that his father would cry every day and would dance 
and throw a big party if his brother came home. But this older brother never went looking for his younger brother. Never cared. But there was an older brother, the son of the father. He went out looking to the world for all these foolish people who threw away their father, did not know there was a father, did not know there was a father who would ache, ache, ache. And he would ache so much that he would send his very best and his son would say, yes, I will go out there. I'll be a much better older brother than the one in this story and help bring back these fatherless to you, Father. That's the gospel. You and I, if you believe in Jesus, somewhere along the line, Jesus came for you. He came for you. If you didn't already have a decent dad, you would have probably just ended up like Arthur Salas too. Most people don't end up like Michael Orr. They end up like Arthur Salas. But if we would go and take a few, and they wouldn't end up like Arthur Salas, and they'd end up a little bit more like Michael Orr. Because Jesus came for us, and we can help a few more find their dad. It would help the whole world see this is what real justice looks like. The one of real justice who would break the chains inside and out. His name is Jesus. He came for you. He came for me. He came for the Michaels. Arthur Salas of this world. Revive church. Let's please never forget. And if we'll never even... Half as good or a quarter as good or 5% as good as Leanne Tui. We could trust that the Holy Spirit will come into our heart and put the heart of the Father through Jesus. And bit by bit, maybe our church will find ways. What no one of us could do, maybe we, as the Jesus Nazareth family, as the family of God revived church, we can be more like the Tuis. And be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are so used to living for ourselves. And um, Lord, help us not go into some grand, we think we're going to solve this or that. But help us live in the gospel. The gospel that offers us real justice. And justice by grace. And a motivation by grace. Help us to not have blind eyes and cold hearts. Help us to be a little bit more upset. And our hearts torn apart. And us more determined and convicted. And I pray that through this series and the upcoming messages, you will do something in this church, in our city, through us. Years later, people would say, Revive Church, we heard the words of real justice. And we want to be more like Leanne and Sean, because this is our Jesus. 
Thank you that you're this kind of father for us. Help us to receive this love from you and to give it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.